Before we start the show this week, we've got a couple of announcements to share with you about upcoming events. You know, we love the podcast and we love talking to you on Twitter and through email about what's happening in your life and on your journey of faith, but it's nowhere near as powerful to us as going to different cities and meeting our listeners face-to-face. And we've got some really exciting opportunities to do that coming up this year. First, I want to tell you about our series of conferences called The Liturgist Gathering. We listen to your feedback about Belong, especially from those of you who wanted to go to Belong but couldn't make it because Belong didn't happen close enough to you or because the tickets were too expensive. And we're determined that this year we're going to get together with as many of you as we possibly can. So here's how we're going to do that. The Liturgist Gathering is happening in four cities geographically distributed across the U.S., Our goal is to be a reasonable drive or affordable flight from as many of you as we can be. We're upping the size of the Liturgist Gathering from 100 with Belong to 500 people per city with the Liturgist Gathering. So instead of 200 people a year having a chance to go, this will let 2,000 people go. And scaling up the event a little bit uh, also lets us offer a much more affordable ticket. So this is not going to be an expensive event like Belong was. Of course, there's no telling who might show up from the Liturgist podcast or the liturgies we've put on, but you know that I'll be there. Michael will be there. Lisa Gunger will be there. We'll have the Honey Badger there. And uh, there's no telling who else of our friends might come as well. Also, so you don't have to take off time from work or take very little time off from work, this is going to be a Friday evening plus Saturday event. Uh, So, you know, not having to miss work. And if you're a minister, you'll be able to catch a late flight back home and uh, be at church Sunday morning. So we're trying to just make this as easy as possible. Now, finally, we can announce dates. We have some dates to announce. Dallas, coming to Dallas, April 29th through 30th. And uh, the tickets will go on sale next week. Denver is going to be September 16th and 17th. And uh, that's just a few days after my book launch, so we'll probably do some special stuff for that. And uh, we don't have dates for Chicago and Los Angeles yet, but uh, those should get announced in the next couple of weeks. If you're interested in going to the Liturgist Gathering, go to theliturgist.com slash gathering to learn more. And you can also sign up to be notified by email about when tickets go on sale or dates get locked in. I don't want to oversell this, but most of the events we do sell out. And uh, at the low ticket price we're offering for the Liturgist Gathering, I expect these tickets to go pretty fast. So if you're not on the email list and if you you wait too long, I'm just worried you might not get a chance to attend. So go to theliturgist.com slash gathering and sign up to be notified via email. Of course, that's not all we've got going on. Uh, This week in Phoenix and Los Angeles, we're doing our Lost and Found event. Uh, That's a liturgy-style event, like the stuff we have on iTunes. And it's a story of, you know, doubt and reconciliation with God through the lenses of science, art, and faith. It's beautiful. It features music by Gunger and the Brilliance. And uh, if you want to go, don't wait, because there's just a handful of tickets left for the second showing in L.A., The first showing is sold out, and in Phoenix, all the VIP tickets are sold out, so you can't do the VIP event anymore, and the regular tickets are going fast. So 
uh, if you were thinking, I don't know if I'm going to go or not, you need to make your decision. You need to buy your ticket, uh, especially in Phoenix. Um, we'd love to see you there. And, you know, we're driving from L.A. to Phoenix. L.A. people, if L.A. sells out, hop in a car. You know, you can you can uh, caravan with us back to Los Angeles. Uh, but we'd love to see you at Lost and Found. And then also, the liturgists are going to be a part of Gunger's One Wildlife Tour. Now, this won't look anything like the liturgist gathering or Lost and Found. It'll be a Gunger show, uh, a rock show, great music. You know, Gunger's music is phenomenal. There'll be a dash of Science Mike stuff as part of that show. And then we'll have a liturgist podcast style Q&A after the concert. So it's going to be really exciting. We're hitting a ton of cities uh, in the southwest primarily. We'll get as far east as Texas. And we'd love to see you there. If you'd like to know more about Lost and Found or that One Wildlife Tour, just go to theliturgist.com slash events. They'll all be listed there. Or you can go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash theliturgist and just click on the tour dates tab and all the events will be there. Links for tickets will be there. Everything you need to know. We would love to see you in the next few months at an event and uh, just go to our website to find out more. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. Michael and I were recently in Park City, Utah for the Sundance Film Festival. We were there to receive the Spirit of Windrider Award from some of our friends at the Windrider Institute for our work on this show. I'm pretty excited about that because I can now introduce myself as an award-winning podcaster at parties, a distinction that's frankly new to me. The only trophy I've ever won uh, was in the seventh grade. Uh, But anyway, we figured if we're going to spend a week in the mountains with the world's most talented filmmakers and storytellers, we should do an episode on storytelling. And to that end, our friends at the Windrider Institute set us up with a recording space that was overlooking this beautiful vista of the mountains. And it had a balcony and there was two feet of snow on it the whole week. And uh, it was just a gorgeous space to talk about how we tell stories. We were really lucky to be able to sit down with several of the filmmakers who were at the festival. So this episode is sort of a collection of some of the conversations that we had at Sundance Film Festival. And we're starting it off with a conversation that we had with Jacob and Hagen Marshall, uh, who you actually heard from on the last episode. But we really enjoyed the conversation. We hope you do as well. So we're here at Sundance. We've been talking about what to put on the podcast because we've seen so many things. Michael said something I disagree with wholeheartedly, so I'm going to ask him to repeat it. Oh, boy. Well, (laughs) we were talking about how specifically should we talk about the films on the podcast. I was like, I don't know that most people aren't going to want to hear about the specifics. The conversation, don't get me wrong, there's been an interesting conversation here after the films and everything. But especially conversation about films that I haven't seen, I'm not interested in. And I was being a little facetious, but I said, I barely am interested in discussion about the films I have seen. You ever watch the bonus content on DVDs? No. Ooh, really? I w- it has to be, I have to be really intrigued to watch the bonus features. Most films kind of think they're made to speak for themselves. And you vehemently disagree. I vehemently. Well, no, it's just like, I almost like a discussion about the film or behind the scenes more, extras more than the film weird. itself. Which I wonder if that's because I care more about crafting stories and hearing them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm. I'm just always desperate to learn how to tell a story better. 
Hmm. And so I have trouble watching films or reading books without deconstructing the craft behind it and what worked and how it was effective. It's very difficult for me to sit with a narrative piece of storytelling without dissecting it for my own gain as a storyteller. Well, what about musicians and albums? Behind you, the scenes? Yeah, do you... I would actually, if it's a band I like, I would love to know behind the scenes. You don't they yeah. have access to that really very often. So I feel like for a lot of filmmakers and storytellers, especially if you don't have a lot of resource and can't go to film school, those behind the scenes become the how-to. And I hate behind the scenes of records. Really? I just want to hear the record. I just want to sit with the record. That's weird how you relate more to filmmakers than music. Well, I, I tell linear stories on stage with spoken communication, or I write stories, but I tell a scene-by-scene narrative that is more rigid and definitive in its character and nature than an album or even a painting. They all tell stories. Yeah, the storytelling in a song, first of all, you only have like five minutes. And that's including instrumental breaks and extended words. And like, you have very few words to tell a story with. Yeah, so I go to stories in novels and films primarily to feel, I think, not to analyze. I, I When I feel like the Newtown documentary last night, and I feel the pain of gun violence afflicted against families. I internalize that emotion, and then out of what I feel in life is where music is born. So I need the feeling more than I need the knowledge of how that was done. In fact, I don't want knowledge that's going to limit any feeling. As I watched that film, and as I was emotionally devastated by its content, they would they'd be interviewing a person who's looking directly at the camera. And as they were talking, sometimes the screen would go dark Mm -hmm. in this cinematic effect. And I went, oh, what a great way to cover an edit. Edit. That's what I thought, too. Right. But I mean, are they doing the same timing every time? Where's the audio file ending before they cut the new audio segment? And like, is it consistent to have a style guide for that? And I lost that whole loop. I did, too. I didn't think it was great. I didn't like that because that's what made me think, too. Made me think of the edit. Did you guys get that? Yeah, and and that's an interesting thing to think about for a second is when the creative act gets in its own way. Mm-hmm. Like when does the craft itself actually prohibit you from encountering the emotion or the insight or the, the wisdom or the, the mm-hmm. breakthrough that the character is supposed to, to go through and realize? I feel like the moment I learned what the willing dispension of disbelief is, it ruined me. <laughs> And so when I watch a film like uh, The Revenant, which is one of the most beautifully shot films, cinematic films I've ever seen, they use only natural lighting in this movie. I take a movie like that and I receive it as a gift. However, because I know what the willing Mm. suspension of disbelief is, I so frequently can step out and, and get caught up on the creative process of all these people that I know that have worked on this project together and think, wow, that's how they did that. And, oh, wow, I would, I would probably have done that a little bit different or that shot. And yeah. Like seeing how the sausage is made. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, so I feel like anytime I'm experiencing film, um, now it's both for me. I'm receiving the gift, but I'm also learning and critiquing. And sometimes I wish I could turn one of them off, Yeah, but I, I can't. 
I think that's part of why I don't usually want to watch extras or anything. I like to keep it as magic as possible. Yeah. What about that um, newer high definition TVs and stuff? The when it gets that like weird effect. What is that called again? You talking about the high frame rate stuff? Yeah, but and it's 120 hertz. No, there's like a, an effect that some people like. <laughs> it looks streamy. No, it almost no. looks too real. Too real. Yeah. Too real. But yeah, yeah. but like. And slow camera. Yeah, it just looks bit. weird, almost like mm-hmm. a soap opera. Or yeah, something. yeah. But that's because yeah. That for me is a real thing. Like when I was even in some of the newer theaters with like the ultra high definition yeah. digital. <clears> yeah. It quick, like the Hobbit, the last Hobbit movie. Yep. I felt like I was on the set, and not in a cave or whatever. And you didn't it? like that. I did not like that. No, I understand. Yeah, I get that. Well, in a way, all of these things are sitting above the the core or fundamental question of why do stories work you know these are effects of production but what is it about a story that has been with us for our entire history as a species as an artifact of something that we trade back and forth or build an entire belief system or a series of customs around when you even think about what am i as a human being you can't take story out of that Without story, what are you? You're just a bag of carbon. <laughs> With, you know, story yeah. is what gives yep. ba- right. the bag of carbon humanity. It's I have a life. I have a family. Right. I have, I'm experiencing time in a sequential order where I have a life that I can think of like my life. A past, a present, a future. Uh-huh. That's all story. A goal, obstacles that stand in the way of achieving that goal. So I don't see it. Story is not extractable from human beings because we are story that's literally true in the brain Hmm. the the Hmm. your consciousness is the set of loops in your brain that model reality creating a story from those events so that's that's why storytelling is so interesting to me because you are constantly telling yourself a story and the way the brain composes the narrative in literary terms is we're the protagonists of our own story at all times, and our brains have a natural tendency to cast anyone that opposes us in any way as the antagonist. It's an automatic filtering function of the brain. Mm-hmm. That's related to why story is so powerful and sweeps us into other places, because it's the only form of information conveyance that lets us escape our own perspective and explore the lens of another person's conscious experience. It's the only, it literally, when you listen to a story or watch a story in film, your brain puts yourself in the shoes of that protagonist. Your sensory cortexes make all the sights and sounds that you either read or watch real. Your documented bias to emulate the beliefs and behaviors of a protagonist you identify with unconsciously. So if you watch a film where uh, the protagonist cheats on his wife and you really identify their protagonist, you might be more likely to cheat on your wife. But on the other hand, if you see a protagonist do something truly heroic, you're actually more likely to be heroic. And even the information, if a protagonist, especially in literature, but also in film, discovers a piece of information, your brain treats it like you discovered that information yourself. And what you'll find is unconsciously in the weeks following the consumption of a story, people will pass on that information if it's, it's their own insight well, ever knowing that happened. What are different religions but different stories about reality? 
I mean, I think some of them are, are better stories. Yeah. Practices attached to stories. And practices attached to stories. Uh, I'm not to the point anymore where I say that there is any objective means in which Christianity is a better story than some other faith. You know what I mean? I don't universally hold that. I, I don't project. That's a fact claim to me. It's, I can't make a faith-based fact claim. I know that Christianity is a story that compels me and compels a lot of people. I know that told well, <laughs> the Christian story pragmatically drives really positive beliefs and behaviors. But I, I think a lot of people identify so closely with those stories, it becomes such a, a core part of how they view themselves, that that's the reason the clashes in these stories creates such intense conflict. Because on the two sides of this story, uh, on the Israel-Islam conflict, on each side, they're both the protagonist and the other is the antagonist. Mm-hmm. It's it's that clean from those two perspectives, and that's just how brains tell stories. I wonder what it's doing to our brains in in how much more sophisticated a lot of our stories are becoming, more and more so with not having such clean protagonists and antagonists, and so clean good guy bad guy. When you consume a story like that, though, it's like listening to a, a particularly creative indie record. You're having to use more of your neocortex to digest that information. And as reality becomes more complex itself, there are some people that are leaning into it. That, But I also think you have this retreat, this craving for simple stories that not only shows up in film and literature and media, pop music, pop, you know, summer blockbusters, those kinds of things, but also shows up in ideologies that voluntarily surrender information for the sake of simplicity. And so there's this retreat. I think the anti-scientism movement, which is common not, in many contexts, not just in the conservative religious right, as science makes reality more ambiguous and more complicated, it becomes overwhelming. It disrupts the brain's ability to tell story, even a to- story to itself, and therefore the brain picks a more palatable story, even if it's not an accurate story. So I saw this study. Everything I say, I start with. I saw this study. <laughs> I had this data. At this point, it feels that it gives me a warmth. <laughs> yeah, I know we're about to go okay, somewhere good. good. So <laughs> they were they were testing how people absorb information, and they invited people in three groups. And before they came into the room, they got blood drawn and twenty dollars. And then they would come into a room and three things happened. One, they were given a list of health detriments to cigarette smoking. In the second group, they were shown a narrative where a child lost their parent to lung cancer from smoking. In the third group, that information was inserted, the facts and figures were inserted into the narrative from the second group. Then they left, they had blood drawn again, and then they had an opportunity to give some percentage of their $20, their participation fee, to anti-tobacco charity, basically. And what they found was, on average, there was a a change in oxytocin, the cuddle hormone in their bloodstream, and it was the least in group one and the most in group three. And not only that, the change and the oxytocin level in their bloodstream predicted the amount of money they would give to the charity. So if they had a big swing in oxytocin, 
they were likely to give all $20. They had a moderate swing, they'd give five or 10. If they had none, they gave nothing. So this, this story, the emotional connection, the facts and figures, orange, <laughs> I'm orange, should be enough. It, it, it should make the case, but it doesn't. It's only the story when someone makes an emotional connection, they see the world through someone else's eyes, that it changes their behavior. There is this admirable movement right now for people to study the methodology of storytelling. But having worked in advertising and having watched politics and even observing religion over human history, this power to influence people through story, um, it can do great things, but it can also be used in horrible ways to justify warfare. One story we tell today is that we're in a post-racial society and that we're all we're all equal and we're all fine. And that's a very pleasant story. If you're white. If you're white. And I can see why people, and why in my past, I've elected to hold on to that story. Mm-hmm. But that story causes immense harm to millions of people in society today. And so I've, I've started to wonder, especially being an unapologetic relativist, how do we know when the story we're telling is a good one? Yeah. That's why I think... Exposing yourself to other stories, finding ways of engaging with stories other than your own is actually somewhat of a moral imperative. And just look at history and how, how many stories have killed how many millions of people. I mean, from the Mongols to Alexander the Great, believing he was the god that needed to spread around. The, every empire had a story. The Germans, the Nazi Germans had a story the, about Germany in their minds that they were telling that they were they had this like God-given right that the explorers of America had this God-given story that we have this manifest destiny that we're bringing the truth of God's word into these barbaric places and and what happens is genocide and also I mean the worst things are because you have stories unchecked that that turn into monstrosities but I think when you start finding yourself hearing the stories of others that are not in your tribe, finding the humanity of others from a different perspective. We were just talking, you mentioned the racial thing. I mean, it wasn't long ago that I, like my black friends and they would talk about how the police treated them differently. I, I thought there was probably something to that, but I didn't, I didn't really, I was like, but you know, the police are mean to me sometimes too. I mean, I've had interactions where they, I feel like that's a jerk police officer. But then when I actually saw one time directly how this police officer treated one of my black friends, and I was like, what? <laughs> and then you start seeing all the, I mean, over the last few years, you can't avoid seeing it in the news, how these stories that are actually happening. And if you're not, if you don't see these stories, you don't feel these stories, it's easy to get insulated into like, I grew up in a town where, you know, I had a couple of black friends and they seemed to be fine. I never, they never got picked on. I, in my experience, everybody's kind of on the equal playing field. But you have to find stories that are outside of your experience and outside of your tribe just to keep moving forward. Is that maybe a little bit of the difference between art and entertainment? Because I think sometimes we, we seek out stories to escape reality. And that's fine. Like, that's part of existence. It's part of how we we cope and we've been entertained and, and even felt the warm fuzzies and, and been enlightened in some, some way through entertaining content. But art and storytelling, a lot of times, is uncomfortable. Something that 
stabs us right in the heart and opens up a part of us that we didn't know was closed. I think that's that's why something like Sundance is important because you you don't really come to Sundance to be entertained mm-hmm. in quite the same way that you would normally go to this. <laughs> Emotionally devastated yeah. and depressed yeah. has been my primary response to these films. Yeah. Yeah. These beautiful these beautiful segments of reality showing me new things while I want to lie down forever. Or not beautiful segments of reality. Yeah. Some of them have not been, the appropriate word has not been beautiful. I mean, how many times have we said this week, I hate human beings? <laughs> <laughs> many, many times. Many, many times. And I've seen beauty in everyone. Hmm. I have. Really? And I think that's, There's and I don't mean within. the brutality. Yeah, yeah. I mean like. No, it's true. Even the Newtown one. Newtown. There's so, so ugly what happened. But there's something about the fact that everybody sitting there and everybody in the film knows that it's ugly and laments it together. That's a goodness. And you see the goodness of humanity and hating it. And you can see the light arise in the darkness of standing up against that evil. And there's something powerful about experiencing that together, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think in many ways we have become desensitized to some of the harsher aspects of our reality. Part of that is the way that those stories get told as news or as as fact. Mm. They get reported unemotionally as yes. fact. And so to be able to process something like that that is in our collective conscious as a nation, to acknowledge that it happened through a story like that allows us to you know share in that kind of processing Man, together. The news is an interesting thing to think of in terms of storytelling because they do a shitty job. Intentionally. Intentionally, yeah. Because you're, because you're not supposed, supposed to, create to distance. Yeah, you're not supposed to impose your emotional reaction into the fact. At least that's historically the tradition of the news. Effectively, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Even the early days of print journalism weren't dry tellings, and historical, historically historical writings were not dry tellings. That's kind of a a modernist take on the assumption that humans can convey objective reality, and so. You know, you had this this birth of objective, and I don't mean Fox News no spin. This is this far predates that, but this uh, factual, non-emotional relaying of events in newsprint that carried over into television news, and this this divide between news and editorial that didn't really exist before that. Hmm. It was obvious if you go back into the 1700s anytime someone was writing a piece it was editorial yeah. everything was editorial yeah. there was no objective i mean the constitution and the declaration of independence are in many ways obviously narrative obviously self-serving documents yeah. they don't they don't try to hide their bias they just try to exclaim the worthiness of their argument and now you got the people that read the bible like a newspaper I mean, that's like what a, Pete Enns is. So that's why I yeah. love what he's, you know, like the, we take a constitutional lens to a story. Mm-hmm. The Bible is a story and it's better that way. Mm-hmm. Like when I take the Bible as a story, I lose all the problems and objections I had reading it as a, as a law book, as um, a history book. And as a science book, mm-hmm. when I take it as stories written by people about their experiences with God, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it has pop art and it has Sundance Film Festival content. 
And it's all in there. There's this great diversity in people's experiences with God. You have these Psalms where people are talking about the favor of God and how they enjoy his protection. It's poetic and it's beautiful. You have lamentations where like, is God even here? And if he's here, he hates us. It's so weird how it got turned into something else, especially how dark it is. <laughs> It'd be like taking one of the darkest films here at Sundance and like trying to make it a moral, sacred text. <laughs> the Holy Anomalisa. <laughs> yeah. Like take that film and just, you're, this is the law of the world. <laughs> <laughs> trying to make science out of it. Trying to make science of it. Of course, to... <laughs> we're all composed of frames. <laughs> <laughs> Which that's kind of interesting. I mean, that's, actually, that's pretty good uh, physics-wise, actually. Um. When you think of this as story, though, and this was one thing I was trying to say in our earlier conversation with Ralph, mm-hmm. because Christianity is—you couldn't even say a story because where which story? It's it's a set of stories that you. That I guess all of us create a story from. It necessitates evolution in mm. in your faith because mm. the story keeps going, like. It's sort of the same thing with the evolution of spiral dynamics. When you have other elements enter the story, it has to, you have to adjust the meta story. You have to, and, and your whole, the whole thrust of the story, if you want to stay on, in the same stream of development, of consciousness towards whatever you're moving towards the light, moving towards good. And in faith, you can't ever push pause. How could the, how could the disciples have pushed pause after the crucifixion if they saw like, whoa, that was like the sacrifice of the lamb or let me say they say they get some some theology from the crucifixion and like oh the, and then the resurrection happens well we already have the theology going we already have the crucifixion oh, they say oh resurrection after crucifixion and then what the ascension and then the birth of the church and then and then the birth of christendom and then the the separation of the east from the west and the, then the protestant reformation and then the all this how could you not have these as like chapters in the story and how does it not affect the story when we found out that the earth wasn't flat and that there's not an upper realm that god lives in and a lower realm that satan lives in? when we could actually like see out and be like oh this is not a three-tiered reality that we have to adjust the story in some way we have to keep going with the story if there's a plot twist in a novel it doesn't mean that everything before that it led you to that point. Now there's a twist and whoa. Oh, we thought they were literal naked people in a garden 6,000 years ago. Whoa. <laughs> twist. It's part of the story and that's fine. I just, I, I think historically oh, back yeah. on the way that the church has responded as an institution to any new development in human insight or understanding. It's always the first to try to shut it down. Yeah. And I wonder what's at the heart of that. Yeah. Well, you have like... Authoritarianism. Basically, yeah. Yeah, the the ability to have complete control the over elevation the elevation of, of an organizational story over the stories of the members that compose that organization. That's authoritarianism. And the growth or a change in stories in members to an organization can threaten the stability of the organizational story. And that's where you see that panicked reaction. But the, the thing I think about so much is at this point in history, you are going to be exposed to the other stories. It's almost impossible to wall yourself off. And if you do, <laughs> you're just isolated from all of culture, all of the world. I found myself so many times in my life entered periods of really emotionally destructive times. They've turned out well. But because I fell upon these stories, I didn't search for them. And there's such a tendency 
to learn from that and then think you've learned to be open to or reflect on all stories. But I've become increasingly aware to how much more open I am to the stories of the oppressed than the comfortable. And there's some merit to that, but I can't deny the stories in my past that shaped me. And I can't deny that other people are on journeys of their own. And I certainly can't allow myself to fall for the trap of believing my story is inherently better or superior to theirs. You know, we've got a a really remarkably diverse set of people that are part of this program that listen and contribute. And that that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of comfort that you have these non-religious people, you have atheists, you have many stripes of the church represented, many denominations, many movements. But I don't think there's any way to get around the fact that if you talk about, say, conservative evangelicalism, for example, that's a that's a pretty small slide. There, there's people there, and I'm grateful for a lot of you who are there, but that, that it's a relatively small sample, and that I've started to insulate my world with the stories that are more palatable to mine. And so I find myself unconsciously distancing myself from people who are good friends who are conservative evangelicals. And I don't mean the, the kinds of relationships that are traumatizing or danger that need boundaries. I'm talking about people that are reasonable friends, thoughtful people who are conservative evangelicals. And I get really personally, and I'm going to use this word, convicted. When I come to something like we've been to this week, because my friend John Pretty puts on this Windrider Institute, and I look at the diversity of voices that he brings to that table, and he's got all the kind of groups represented by our liturgist podcasts. So he's got atheists that show up and filmmakers that don't believe and non-religious and Catholics and mainline Protestants. But he also brings a bunch of really conservative evangelicals to the table and Mormons and Muslims. And he brings them all together and the other wider co-founders in this context of telling better stories. And all the sharp elbows I usually see at those gatherings aren't present. And I find it both beautiful and deeply challenging. Deeply challenging. I think if you some what's so powerful about some of the stories here is they help you zoom out enough. Because if you find a evangelical Christian and a and a Muslim person, let's say, and one of the people here was talking about one of the filmmakers was saying how to the evangelical, when they're saying Allah, when the Muslim person is saying Allah, they're saying something different in form, but they're both just really saying God. Literally, they're just both saying God. And when you can zoom out far enough, both the evangelical or the Muslim person, and you can see, oh, here we are, these human beings, these little specks of dust on this rock with a very limited knowledge of, of anything. We're both trying to find meaning. We're both trying to find love. We're both trying to find a way to survive in this world that gets so harsh. We both want to find ways of having our hearts not so closed off or that we feel okay. We both want to feel okay. You know, like you zoom out and you see, oh, we're largely doing the same thing. We find, when you zoom in, you find that there's a lot of specifics that we tr- we think we have different answers to. We have different stories. But when the story gets informed by a, a wide enough camera angle, you can find a lot of common ground with anybody. And I'd say one of the things driving the expansion of that perspective has been the internet. 
and the fact that for the first time in human history, we've had this ability to connect to each other globally uh, across vast distances, across ideologies, across languages, all the things that normally divide us and separate us and keep us in our, our more closed communities or our more similar communities, we can traverse those more easily. It's the, the whole internet thing. That's like, that's where I was going because there's this possibility with digital connectivity of having other stories hit your story like matter and antimatter. And there's a huge release of energy and both are gone. And you're just left going, wait, what? Oh, accidental nihilist. Because that's the virtue of, of connection without intent. But I think there's something to be said for the evangelical seminaries that are sending their students to Sundance. And those students are coming with intent and they're getting their, their perspective broadened but they're not surrendering their story. The way that I was exposed to new story, it destroyed my evangelicalism. I could, there was no way I could hold on to that anymore. But I see, I see these students coming in, holding on to like really core theological and ideological tenets of evangelicalism, and yet at the same time being open to the world in the same way that I am. And that actually gives me that unity through storytelling and the appreciation of it gives me hope for a better future for humanity. Which is why the arts are so important and why we shouldn't cut arts funding from education and what, because the arts is, is how we tell these stories the best. Yes. Yep. Yes. You can, yeah. you, you can have the news agencies report these stories or you can have Facebook posts about them or whatever, but it's art that gets like, to go back to that Newtown story again, I knew that story and I felt really sad when I saw it on the news. But I didn't weep for an hour about it like I did last night because it was put in an artistic medium that, that drove it into my heart. And that's important. That's important for the future of the human race. And I wonder how related the retreat to simplistic stories in our society is with the way we've decimated arts education in this country mm. and have been for 30 years. Because mm-hmm. modernism it. devalues art. Right. De- it's, it's all about... Information, objectivity. E- you know, e- even English is a practical implement to communicate as you do mm. science and math. Mm. And don't get me wrong, <laughs> I do like the science. Sure. But it's not, a, it's not a complete picture of the world. And frankly, science can help you optimize a story, but it can't help you craft or tell one. Look at when science is at its most, even science is at its most powerful. When you, for me, when I see cosmos, or yeah. when I see like it's put into an yeah. art form, that I suddenly, I can see these stars and the bit, like I know there are billions and billions of stars. I know, I know that. But when I see, even when we went into this art gallery this afternoon and there's a photo of the Milky Way over this rock and you see, mm. and even just seeing that, you're like, those are all stars. Like, that's a galaxy. You can see a little galaxy. And like, there's something about the art form of that photograph that n- raw data can't get into your heart unless maybe maybe science Mike data can get into his heart more pretty pretty good pretty good <laughs> but for most people it is art that turns uh, word into flesh I have wept twice reading Brian Greene's <laughs> Fabric of the Cosmos I'm a little emotional thinking about uh, special relativity That's all. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who's a poet uh, and he says for a science guy you have a poet soul. And so a lot of times when I read scientific things, they invoke images to me mm-hmm. that are, are poetic. And then I weep. Yeah. 
You know, so I'm reading about, I've always understood special relativity in the context of uh, bending space-time with both speed and gravity. What I didn't understand, and thank you, Brian Green, is that the effects of special relativity are amplified by distance. And so if you have two points sufficiently far enough apart, say 10 billion light years, relatively minor changes in their relative velocity can cause huge disparities in what you would call now, the common now, the common reference frame between the two of them. And in fact, pretty small changes in velocity can sweep now back and forth across human history. And so when I read that, like I immediately looked at my life in a different way, how at some theoretical vantage point, one You don't moment, exist yet. Yeah, or I'm being born again. <laughs> or I'm being born again yeah. again. Wow. Or I'm already holding my grandchildren please girls or uh, or you've been dead for 10,000 years or I've been dead for 10,000 years or I haven't been here yet but in that way I'm just that I'm always here mm-hmm. and then that got me thinking about like this silly Jesus obsession of mine <laughs> and the cross and the tomb and the manger and all those scenes and how some way across din- 10 billion light years and relative velocities those moments are now yeah just from where you're looking Literally, from where you're looking, it is right now. And story helps you look from a different place. That's right. And song or image, poem, yeah, film, mm. those are the units of uh, our humanity in a way. Ralph Winter is a film producer who has helped produce blockbuster movies such as X-Men, Fantastic Four, and many of the original Star Trek films. He also worked on iRobot and the first remake of Planet of the Apes. His IMDb page reflects a staggering level of success, and his films have grossed collectively over $2 billion. So Michael and I sat down with Ralph to talk about film, faith, and how story changes people. Why do you think... Hollywood does such a better job telling stories today than the church does. Hollywood is skilled at the storytelling process. You can sort of break down movies as in the three things, content, structure, and style. Oddly enough, in Hollywood, we talk about the content for a moment, and then all we talk about after that is structure and style, how the story is told. I contrast that with the way things are done in the church. In the church, the content's all important. It's the preaching. It's the message, it's the words. And it's not, it's not the structure of the worship service and how it leads to that, and although good churches do a good job of that, good worship services, but it's primarily about content. We need to be better storytellers. We also, as a faith community, are not in touch with the visual as much because we threw that out in the, pro- in the Reformation. So let's make a let's make a let's make oh, a that's list. A great point. Let, let's make a list of all the great evangelical directors, and 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 it's hard. Okay, let's make a list of all the great Catholic directors. There's Coppola. There's John Ford. There's Hitchcock. You know, you, you can just sort, you know run down Martin Scorsese. You you can run down the list of great storytellers, hmm. and they're steeped in the images of the church and what they've grown up with. They're they're not afraid of showing blood. But that offends the Puritan stuff inside of us as evangelicals. I was brought up, you know, in the Presbyterian Church. That's a hard transition for Protestants, I think. And so we have to work extra hard to become uh, better storytellers, better visualizers of that. 
the, the secular market has no trouble telling stories in a visual way. But we resist it because, oh, they said a bad word. Oh, uh, there's too many F words. I can't see that. Where, where a lot of people live, that's the way they talk. You may not like it. And I think that leads to another thing that I'm way off topic now. That's where we live, by the way. <laughs> in the margins. That niceness is confused with Christianity. Mm. That's not Christianity. Mm. So we, we have to separate those things. What's biblical Christianity and what's cultural Christianity? I think the, the more we dig into what that's about, the more we're going to be better informed about what our faith is, etc., and it'll drive us to different stories. Story, storytelling is pervasive in our culture. We talk about it in every aspect of our life. In the courtroom, you have to have the right narrative. They talk about that. They talk, in, in, in the corporate world, in terms of what our vision is, it's about what's your narrative, what's your story? How are you gonna tell your story of your big, you know, engulf and devour so that people will engage with you and, and resonate and be sympathetic to what your cause is? It's all about your story. We live in a culture where the best story wins. So if you're on Wall Street and, and the story in the culture is that no matter what China does, we're going to get crushed, when in fact the actual exports of the U.S. are 0.6 of 1% of the exports, it doesn't matter what the facts are. This narrative is so powerful, it controls us. That can be for good or evil. That, that can work either way. Look how the stories of conspiracy about JFK are enduring. Mm. Whether it's true or not, it's powerful. I read them as a kid. Story is a powerful thing. And I think humans, we've known it for millennia. We sit around campfires. That's how we teach our kids. Here's how to hunt. Here's how to be a good friend. Here's how to avoid disaster. Here's what to do when you're in trouble. And the, the power of those stories, the oral tradition that's carried down through that tribal culture, we just do it now you know, on Netflix. Stories get even more powerful when they're emotional. When I can bring you to an emotional place, and it can be laughing, where you're making fun of something or enjoying how something is being ridiculed, or it can be emotional where you're literally can't control yourself weeping, then when your defenses are down, the messaging, the story, for good or bad, is, is much more readily accepted. It's easier for you to absorb that information when you're emotionally vulnerable. If you just want to look at it from a practical economic point of view, <laughs> then you should embrace storytelling. If you want to look at it from a spiritual point of view, how do I affect the world? It's from a storytelling point of view. The stories that 12 guys had 2,000 years ago changed the world. It's incredibly, that's all they had. That's all they had. That's all they had. They had nothing, they didn't have technology. But they were right place, right time, and we think, we believe, right story. Mm. Ralph Winter. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. Cool. We also sat down with Jeremy Clough. He was the grand prize jury winner of the Windrider International Student Film Festival. His film, This Way Up, tells the story of a homeless father trying to hide his living situation from his family. And in doing so, his film challenges popular notions of poverty and the homeless. How much are you thinking in overall arching themes? Or are you trying to just stay in the story and let the themes speak as they will to whoever? You know what I mean? Like, are you coming from the small to the big? Or are you coming from big to the small? 
Um, to be honest, every story is completely different. I remember with my feature, I was driving in a car one day and like a nine-year-old girl pulled up next to me in traffic driving a truck. And I was like, what in the world is that girl's story? <laughs> That's uh, pretty weird. It was super weird. And that was kind of the impetus for the whole story. Just that image of kind of exploring like, how does that happen? And so that kind of launched this whole story and theme came a little bit later once we'd kind of explored some ideas that were just interesting to us. I think um, one of the best things to do is just kind of stay fascinated with the project. So as long as something's pecking at you and you're exploring an idea and wanting to push that further, I think that's kind of what drives it. So sometimes it starts with theme, sometimes it doesn't. Everybody has a different process. I know I'm pretty sure with Christopher Nolan, theme always comes last and it's just a different way of working. And when, when you say theme comes last, I don't think that's actually ever true. I just think maybe it's theme is subconscious at that point. You don't really realize what your story is about, but you have a story that you feel like needs to be told and you're not exactly sure why. And as you kind of narrow things down and withhold some information and put in more, you really kind of, it comes to kind of fruition. I feel the same way with different albums that we've made. There are some that I have a heavier theme at the beginning and other ones that I discovered the theme in the specifics rather than mm -hmm. the other way around. I worked in the ad business for 15 years, which is hugely informs my storytelling sensibilities sure, for yeah. good and definitely for bad. And so I was trained in a methodology where you begin with an understanding of where you're going to take someone who sees content mm -hmm. and what it's going to do to them thematically to cause a particular action. Sure. And I've drilled that so long, it's actually hard for me to imagine just starting with a story and letting it unfold organically as opposed to putting it on rails and taking it somewhere. Yeah, I think uh, once I'm at the script writing phase, I definitely know where it's ending before I start. I definitely know the journey I'm trying to take the viewer on, and I know what, how I want to move them and what, what I want them to feel when they walk away from the movie. But it's so, film is so open to interpretation many times. You know, you start out kind of with multiple themes. That can be convoluting and it can kind of messy up something, and, and sometimes it's about taking those other things out so people aren't drawing meaning from everything every little thing and yeah. going in different directions and kind of solidifying to what is the one specific theme and and trying to find that one we saw this film in the the golden deer i haven't seen that yet no. okay so there's this screen and you're watching like this it's a loop it's on a loop but you're seeing this like golden calf or deer born out of a couch that had just been zoomed in from this luxury house and then it flies up in a spaceship, winds up in a duty-free shop in this airport, and then they're floating this like phallic, weird, like bendy, mushroom, spiky thing, comes out of an anus that is the anus of a larger golden deer, but it's like a photorealistic human anus, and you're sitting there going like, what? <laughs> And, and at I, first, I, I assumed it meant nothing when I first saw it. I was like, "This is just nonsense, like just a dream, you know, drug inspired, whatever." Sure. And then, but the more we watched it, we kept like trying to draw meaning. I think, <laughs> I think the air. He goes, "I think this is about privilege." <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's that's to your point in that the human brain searches for meaning in everything. It's always looking for patterns, and so to tell a story. And to take people somewhere, you have to be so intentional about what's in and what's out. Because even a great scene can detract from that theme you're landing on. Definitely. I totally agree. But I need to check out this Golden yeah. Deer exhibit. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, spoiler alert, there's also a giant floating castle with 
<laughs> humongous testicles. Yeah. Oh wow. I mean, it's it's, it's a maybe weird the weirdest thing, thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of an expert in the weird, and this was just beyond, beyond, <laughs> beyond weird. I'd love to read the artistic statement for that piece. Well, we talked to the bartender. It was so funny because the bartender stands right next to the to the film that's looping, and she said. She sees it eight hours a day. For it was like the fifth day or whatever that we were there. And she said the artist. She googled it one day because she sees people all day sitting there analyzing, doing what we were doing. Like, yeah. I think it means this. And she finally, the filmmaker came and she recognized him. And she's like, "Okay, you have to tell me. I stand here eight hours a day watching this movie. You have to tell me what does it mean." He's like, "It doesn't mean anything. It was a dream." <laughs> maybe, maybe his dream is telling you something. <laughs> <laughs> So this week we've been hanging out at the Sundance Film Festival with some friends. One of those is uh, John Pretty, a guy I've known since he uh, took me to Sundance last year. He's a co-founder of something called the Windrider Institute. And we're also here with Greg Detweiler, uh, who also co-founded Windrider. And it's a pretty remarkable experience. I didn't really know what to expect last year when I got a call from John saying, hey, do you want to come to Sundance? I couldn't figure out why... I could contribute to Sundance in the first place as a weirdo nerd podcaster. But when I arrived, I found something pretty spectacular. And there was this odd intersection of seminary students and film students and filmmakers having really compelling conversations about faith and culture. And so I want to talk a little bit with John and Craig today about how that came to be and what the goals are on Windrider. Tell me a little bit about how it all started, John. Well, first of all, it's just great to be with you guys. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and uh, I've been waiting for you know a year to get invited to be on the show. <laughs> you made it. Yeah, Gunger finally said, "Why don't you know? Can't we just get the guy out of the way and get an interview with him?" So it's it's great to be with you guys, and also I'm delighted to be here with Craig because he, along with uh, Will Stoller Lee and my brother Ed. The four of us are the co-founders of the, of the Windrider Forum. And it happened uh, very differently than we imagined. We, the four of us came 13 years ago with the idea. Craig was a professor at Fuller at the time. I was a Fuller student, Fuller Theological Seminary. We came with the idea of what would it look like to have a, a class at the uh, Sundance Film Festival, a class for credit where seminary students could come and take in Sundance. And we thought we were originally coming with the idea that we would go see Sundance films and we would come back and talk about them. If you'd have told me 12 years later that we would be the number one ticket purchasing block at Sundance, we'd have 13 institutions, 10 undergraduate, three graduate institutions here, and that we're a place where Sundance filmmakers want to come back and have a conversation with us, I don't think we could have predicted that on our first trip. Craig, what do you think? Well, that's, that's exactly right. We, were, we had this group of students, uh, some were aspiring film students, you know, people who wanted to be film majors, um, and then others were these seminary students, and we went to the films, and, and basically the text for the course was, go see, the, go see films, right? So instead of reading 10 books, you've got to go see 10 films. You happen to have to do it in one week, right? Mm-hmm. But that was the assignment. And uh, as we got into these films, we realized there's so much intense spiritual content on these films that it took a lot to unpack it. So we came back to unpack it. And then we, we realized that, hey, the filmmaker's right here. And we didn't really get to ask as many questions as we wanted. Let's go up and ask him or, or her if, if they'd join us. So the first person we did that with was a guy named uh, Kirby Dick, who is, is Academy Award nominated. It was a film called Twist of Faith, which was you know, about uh, abuse in, in the Catholic Church and priest scandals and that type of thing. Really messy, thorny film. We asked him to come back and join us. And, and so he starts talking to this group, and it takes him about 10 minutes before he realizes, like, 
wait, you guys all like believe in God. And I just made a film about abuse, you know, in the name of God. Suddenly it's like a light went off in his head and he was like, you've got like a, a community here that's like my community of filmmakers, but your community is, is now joining with my community. And it kind of blew his mind. And he was our first guest, and we've had countless and amazing Sundance winners with us every year since. Hmm. Why do you find it important to have seminary students and Christian students for them to engage with culture on this level? You know, independent film is such an interesting genre to have as a way to enter in. And what we've learned, and specifically here at the Sundance Film Festival, is there's a tremendous spiritual conversation taking place. The people of faith can enliven that conversation, but by and large, that conversation is happening with or without us. And oftentimes, most often, it's happening without us. Well, I think it trains you in a sense to be a first responder. You know, five years ago, we were dealing with film after film that was dealing with the questions of the gay community and the Christian community, and is there tension, and what about gay Christians, and and nobody knew exactly how to talk about it. Well, we've been talking about it for over five years, so we're not surprised Mm. by this conversation. Uh, Same thing, I think, is going to happen with the the gun conversation, right? We're going to see films that that deal with... There's four films. Yeah, that deal with the Newtown tragedy, and as people of faith, we better be ready to respond, Mm. you know, and and get in front of the conversation Mm. rather than responding kind of after the fact. Both years I've been to Sundance, I have found compelling, beautiful, evocative spiritual art. So what can people in the church, especially the institutional church, learn from filmmakers at Sundance about how to tell good stories that also explore real spiritual issues? Well, I I feel like it's, in a sense, first and foremost, telling the truth, kind of unvarnished, right? these, These filmmakers aren't editing themselves. They're sort of wading into issues where they may not have the answers, but they say, somebody needs to get into this. Somebody needs to address this. And, and I think we tend to maybe, as people of faith, pull back and sort of say, well, I have to figure out what the answers are before I'm allowed to start talking. And these filmmakers are like, no, 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 we have to talk now. And so that kind of courage, I think, is very instructive to our students. I also think the artist gets isolated. Part of the the courage that Craig is talking about is it's messy. You know, it's messy to delve into stories and to try to bring truth out. And so in many ways, if we can surround uh, a young filmmaker with a collaborative team. I I guess what I, the goal would be maybe more arts savvy pastors and more theologically informed filmmakers. Yeah, that's 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 the sweet spot. And and it's the the bringing of those people together, right? Rather than isolating them, rather than rather than saying, "Oh, well, artists, you're supposed to over be there in art world," or pastors, you're supposed to stay out out of art world and just stick to theology. It's like, no, no, no. We all need to get into the middle of that mix, which is that cultural matrix where all these discussions both spring from and continue. So, if you look at kind of the national conversation around the church and Christianity today. Take any issue, uh, presidential elections, guns, Black Lives marriage Matter. equality, Black Lives Matter, whatever. You find a church that's deeply polarized against itself, that more than I've seen in a long time, publicly there's a Napoleonic warfare thing going on, shooting across at each other, not acknowledging any shared culture or even core faith ideas. Uh, but then I come to Windrider, and there's a remarkable diversity of denominational backgrounds and theological positions, all sharing space and doing so successfully. So how have you cultivated that kind of culture? How do you bring all those people to the table together? In, in my view, it's about creating place and space because 
when you go to a film at a film festival, there's a thing called a Q&A, right? And the Q&A at a film festival tends to not be very deep. When we come back to our space with those filmmakers, it's, it is a safe space. Now, it doesn't mean that people are going to agree. That's not the intention of it. But it's a way for people to hear the filmmaker's perspective of why they told a particular story. So whereas a question at the, at the Sundance Festival might be, what camera did you use? At the Windrider Forum, the students might ask, who are you? And why did you choose this topic? And how has it changed your life? And what can you tell us about that journey? It's a very different type of discussion. And that discussion seems to percolate a cohesion of generosity. I like that. I think that is right. I, I, I feel like what, I'm, what we're trying to do with Windrider is, I think, is create a third way, which I think is sort of, sort of a Jesus way, right? Jesus was, was, he was basically assassinated by a combination of like liberals and conservatives. You know, he was sort of, he was sort of <laughs> equally hated on both sides. Like the, and, and so I think what we're trying to do is it's not that it's an apolitical space. It's a highly politicized discussion that we're having, but it is, it's sort of asking you to put aside your preconceptions and actually hear from each other. In the same way, when you enter into a film, you should probably do the same thing. You should say, okay, for this 90 minutes, I'm going to get into their head and into their world see what they have to say and then i'll come back to my world and what i know and bring that to it but until i've actually heard them for 90 minutes i can't start speaking not really fairly right until i've seen the end of the film i don't know what the filmmaker's point was and so in a sense new, like john said it's a safe space it's a neutral space and it's a, a listening posture as opposed to a posturing posture i don't want to get too deep dish but what we are doing theologically, we would say is reversing the hermeneutical flow. Maybe in a normal situation, you sort of put on your Bible goggles and then you like see the world, create your politics, you know, read a book, watch a film. We ask you to put aside the Bible goggles and just watch the thing and then be open to God speaking to you through that experience and then pick your Bible back up. And maybe you're going to read the Bible differently. Because now your heart has been opened up a little bit. You've been softened a little bit. You maybe have been sensitized a little bit, right? I had to watch a film yesterday about Kurdish refugees, right? Syrian refugees. They took me there. I can't go and pick up a newspaper the same way now. Because I just spent, you know, two hours in a, in, a, in a Kurdish refugee camp and situation. So that storytelling thing, right? It broadens your heart. It broadens your mind. And then I actually think it makes you more receptive to the Spirit of God in your life. And that's that reverse yeah. hermeneutic. I think right? that's powerful. I think that that was something that switched for me. I remember in college, because I, I was raised in, I, I had pretty strict, like, the things I would watch. You can't let the bad things in. You know, you got to guard the temple. And then there came, like, a flip for me in college. I forget, I read a book, basically kind of saying some of that stuff, like, listen to God through art and through film and through culture. And it's interesting to even think, the people that canonize scripture, when they're thinking about what should be canon, they're looking at stories and they're looking at... Um, and what is true. <laughs> what is true and where is the Spirit speaking through these the stories? That's something that people of faith have, I guess, always done is like the stories that we've told and that we pass on, we find God in them. And so learning to do that, not just with the, the stories that have been deemed, God has already been found here, God has already been, but look everywhere. Yeah, and I, God's still speaking, yeah, right? That's, yeah. that's the idea. 
with Christians and art. Why are Christians often afraid of places like Sundance? And why does Christian art, a lot of times people that are within the church and they want to make art, they want to make movies, they want to make music. From my experience, what that means, like if you're going to say there's a Christian movie playing, you wouldn't necessarily assume that that's the birth of a nation or a, you wouldn't assume that's Christian because there are raw human elements like you would find all in scripture. There's sex, there's cussing and violence. And a lot of times Christian media is stuff that cuts off all that stuff and kind of sanitizes it, and makes it family friendly. Well, we're re- I think we're recovering the fact that the Bible is an R-rated document, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, it, you yeah. know, it, every other chapter is, you know, mm-hmm. incest, murder, rape, pillaging, stuff in the name of God, misunderstanding of God, using God to justify your position, good kings, bad kings. That's, that's the history, right? It's the history of humanity. It's the history of people of faith. I think we're just allowing people to reclaim a more holistic view of both Scripture and ourselves. That how, says, do you think it, how do you think it went there, though? Like, How did it get into the G-rated yeah, version? How did, why, does, why does Christianity do that, do you think? I, I think we prefer a G-rated lie to an R-rated truth. Hank Hughes was the winner of the Windrider International Student Festival's Director's Choice Award for his short film Day One, which, by the way, was also nominated for an Academy Award. Inspired by a true story, Day One depicts a new translator's first day accompanying a U.S. Army unit as it searches for a local terrorist. As she quickly discovers, her job will bring up brutal complexities as gender and religious barriers emerge with lives hanging in the balance. This is our conversation with Hank so, Hughes. So, one day. Day one. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be the most fun interview. We better get out right away. I was like, I don't want to, because like, if I didn't say it then, we'd have been this whole thing. Hughes Hank, one day. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's fine. I'm not even like upset or embarrassed. It's no, just, no, it's, it's cool. It's pretty cleaner. You, I've never met someone more comfortable with making mistakes than I am, or else I'd like I'd have to die. I just I make mistakes constantly. So, this film really wanders into some pretty politically hot territory. Like just the setting immediately, the Middle East, the tension between all the cultures there is the backdrop for the film. What drew you to telling a story in such a hot geopolitical context? The, the practical answer is that um, I spent two years in Afghanistan. I did two tours, and uh, it's a big part of who I am and how I see the world. I can't separate the fact that I now make movies, and I was in the Army, and so therefore whoever knows those two pieces of information are going to assume that one informs the other. It can be something that is perhaps too defining, um, and also people might accept what I'm saying as more valid, which may or may not be true because mm. it's just at the end of the day it's just uh how i felt about something and uh to do some sort of like um larger inductive reasoning of like well if this one veteran feels this way about the war then that means you know you can choose that to fit your own agenda how you see fit so that that, that i feel dangerous about that but also i just thought i'd ignore that and mm. <laughs> try and say what i felt was true so what drew you to filmmaking? Somewhere in high school, I was in Kentucky, and we started making class projects, and I was naturally drawn towards it. Um, I just loved the idea of creating something. So it's your, it's your art form. Uh, yeah, yeah, you could say that, sure. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't think I would necessarily be very good at photography or painting or maybe even a novel, but somehow the, the movie, if you only have to be like, um, you know, a jack of all trades and some of those things and a mm-hmm. master of none, um, and you can work in a collaborative manner with uh, people who are masters in their mm-hmm. specific fields to build something together. So the teamwork aspect of it is really uh, fundamental to like why I enjoy the process for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I'm always jealous of as a musician. Like every time I see a film and I see all those names, I'm like, the, the amount of brilliant people working together on one thing. That's so cool. Like it's I get to work with a few brilliant people sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I'm an author. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's even yeah. less. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I'm always jealous of musicians because their expression is so immediate and like primal. Mm. Like you guys get this, you get to share that with, you know, an immediate audience, whether it's one person, yourself or hundreds of people in a way that like in order for, you know, to make a, just a short film it, it took a year you're putting a lot of time and effort and all your eggs in one basket and hoping that it kind of comes together i appreciated the sensibility and the sensitivity to not portray any person or people group in black and white protagonist antagonist terms and i thought that that kind of helped undermine some of the especially american narrative about war where good guys rush in versus bad guys and the, the complexity of that storytelling was really compelling so i was raised uh, i think i said earlier in germany and we had this family across the street that became like a surrogate family and so their opa became my opa or grandfather for a few years and we would just like hang out and play chess as a young boy and uh, i remember i asked him once because uh, i think i'd learned in school about world war ii and i said i asked if he was a nazi and he asked my father he's like can i tell your son the truth and my dad said yeah you can and he said, yes, I was a Nazi. I was in the SS. Now, he was not in the concentration camp SS. He was in the Waffen SS, which is like, to be frank, essentially what I was in in the American Army. It's a very hardcore elite unit. So it's interesting because here's this man that I had grown to admire, uh, who spent time with me, uh, who was a mentor. And uh, he went on to explain that, yeah, he was, I was 18 or 19, whatever it was. And that's what boys did in Bavaria and I thought to myself you know it's interesting like I I can look back like I signed a contract when I was like 17 because that's what men in my family do that doesn't make it so simple and binary I I guess I'm not really interested if it's right or wrong or good or bad because it's just like simply human that people sometimes make choices that aren't really their choices I mean I still think you have to own your choices I I don't mean to say that uh, it's a free-for-all in that way but there are circumstances beyond you that that shape who you are to just so simply say because there are 13 stripes and 50 stars on my shoulder that I'm a good guy I think is missing the point of actually why we started as a country we should all have a bit of humility to understand that if I was born in Nazi Germany under certain circumstances I can't be sure that I wouldn't. Yeah. We're a product, largely a yeah. product of our... Totally. Where we're born, I mean, when we're born. I always thought of the guys that were that we were shooting at each other in Afghanistan, thinking, you know, like if I was 16 and someone invaded, this is how they see yeah. it, invaded my country, yeah. uh, they don't belong here, and I'm being told and have good evidence to say that they're not doing what I think they should be doing based on my morals or, or social mores, really. Yeah, I, I would definitely take up arms and do that thing. I mean, it's it's not unbelievable, actually. It just requires a little bit of empathy or to look from their point of view. And it's tough because you're right. The thing that rebels is like, well, of course I wouldn't be... I don't want to kill people. You feel like you're a good person. You want to believe that you're a good person. Yeah. And and you also don't want to just justify bad behavior because then right, what? Yeah. everybody has their own circumstances. Anybody that kills, anybody that does anything horrible, 
there are reasons that they ended up there that, and a lot of them are beyond their control. Personality disorders, mental illness. Like, sure. um, so you don't just want to like excuse it, but you also, it's a complicated thing. Like very much. It's funny. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and it's like the more, the further I've gotten away from my wartime experience, I, I've, I feel less judgmental about things because I find it so hard to find a, a structured way to say yes or no, good or bad, because you start to realize like, well, I did some things that were, if seen from the right way, are not necessarily good, some things that are bad. And so how does that, and I didn't mean to, my motives I thought were, were good. And so it becomes a very complex thing. And I use the word thing because I can't ever nail down what we're talking about, <laughs> honestly. Your film, like so many films at Sundance, explores the kinds of themes we're talking about. Really complex narratives, high degrees of empathy for people in different perspectives, multicultural, much more real-to-life stories. And they, because of that, help people become informed and explore perspectives that are alien or foreign to them. And on the other hand, you have summer blockbusters, which tell very simple stories with very obvious good guys and bad guys. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it are more palatable to human brains. How do you as an artist think we can help people cultivate an appetite for more sophisticated, more compelling stories? I think first I have to recognize that sometimes people go to the movies just to be entertained. And that's not bad. Like I, I actually enjoy a good popcorn movie. I one day want to make big movies that people can enjoy um, hopefully that also like, you know, uh, test the way you think or, you know, require empathy. But um, there is an amusement ride aspect to going to the movies. And that's something that is, it doesn't even need to be unavoidable. It's, it, it's just a, a fun thing that can happen. And so I think that it, just allowing that as, a, as its own thing is great. But I do think storytelling has gotten much more sophisticated over time. Look at the Old Testament versus New Testament and uh, how um, harsh one is and how nuanced the other is. And that changed, you know, as people changed, you know, and so you have, I'm sure these stories were going to allow more nuance as the world is becoming a global society, as we're like hearing all these other stories as, as a bunch of 19 old Americans go to Afghanistan for a year, like the world is becoming a smaller place. I don't think it'll be as simple. I mean, think about the internet, like, and how connected we are now. Like, I don't think people automatically uh, want to just shuffle things left and right. Um, and so I, I think it will start to get more nuanced. Even some of the bigger blockbusters are, are, are trying for sure. But it is... Uh, Star Wars made me hurt for Stormtroopers this time. For sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's, 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 that, that was actually one of my biggest sticking points of the movie. I actually wish he had uh, been a part of that, that massacre. Uh, I feel like the old Star Wars might have done that, and the new one kind of let him just witness it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, nonetheless, that was a very like, a, a nuanced thing that I was concerned about. But I thought, very good. Very good that they're like showing that this is a stormtrooper who's like questioning what he's doing, mm-hmm. and the casting in that alone is very helpful for moving forward in a, a thoughtful, progressive manner. So I know I was I was overall very pleased with the new Star Wars in that way. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the Old Testament and the New Testament, and mm-hmm. what our podcast is about is the intersection of science, art, and faith. So how does your faith inform your art, and how does your art inform your faith? I was raised very Catholic. Um, I actually wanted to be a priest when I was younger, up until about like 12 or 13, and then I guess girls came along or something. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, I would probably say that uh, two years ago, I would have called myself an atheist. And um, my wife and I, she is a very 
spiritual person who searches for the deeper meaning of her existence. And it has been a, a model to look at that. And I don't know what my answers are anymore, certainly, but I know that there's the search is, a, is an incredibly valid search. Mm. The, where I'm at with faith and how it informs my art, and I, I think they actually tie together really well, which is that I don't have answers, but I know that I'm asking the right question. Oh, I was an atheist, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, and I'm, I definitely am a just ask questions. I have no answers. You know what did it for me was uh, not just my wife and, and her, her search, but you guys watch Cosmos? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, my goodness. It just, I, it just made me feel so minuscule and also so important and part of being like all the stardust stuff. Like, yeah, I, was yeah. just like, I was like, what is the design of all of this? <laughs> you know, you start thinking these really big questions. Yeah. If you liked Cosmos, yeah. you got to read Pale Blue Dot. Oh, Sagan's it's book. funny. It's on my list. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. It's, yeah, that's like the one of the best books ever written it's that that for me is uh it, like in a very minuscule way like storytelling is like going to church and then like the biggest existential stuff i've done so far uh, is like thinking about the universe and that that really kind of brought me back into this idea of maybe there is more than just um what i can rationally or you know in a reductionist way say this is this or this is that So we've talked a little bit in this episode about how story shapes your brain, but your brain has a reference point for lots of media now. Your brain knows how to accommodate a podcast or a television program or a film or a book. You have a filter that lets you step back from those media if it's overwhelming, if you don't like what you're hearing. And this week, uh, we've got to spend a lot of time trying out something that blows away that distance. It's called virtual reality. Now, if you uh, don't live under a rock, you've probably heard the term VR many times in your life. Uh, the Matrix was an exploration of what really advanced VR could be good and bad, mostly bad. VR has been something that's been talked about since the 90s. Uh, and I tried VR in the 90s. It wasn't impressive. It was really primitive. And then, yesterday... I was on Mars. <laughs> like, I was on Mars. I'm telling you, like, I just looked over, and there was, like, the Martian surface in glorious, lifelike, textured, 3D detail. And I drove a rover, and I prepared a spacecraft for launch, and then, using my glove, I propelled myself towards space into a rendezvous point. And my brain believed it all. He was a five-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's called the Martian, the VR experience. But I've even got this little simple thing. It's, it's made by Mattel. It's a Viewmaster. You remember the Viewmaster. But this is, you put your phone in it, and it's a really like a $30 basic VR headset. And I played a game called Sisters. Well, it's not a game. It's a story. But it's a horror story, and not like gory, really simple, second grade, turn the lights out, ooh, there's someone next to you. And I couldn't finish it the first two times. <laughs> <laughs> and we were actually in this New Frontiers exhibit at Sundance, and we heard someone scream, yeah. and she ripped the VR headset off because her brain couldn't get the distance from VR. Now, this is interesting. One, because VR is kind of overcoming the brain's ability to, to resist story. 
But on the other hand, nobody knows how to tell stories in VR yet. Because in traditional storytelling, if it's a novel, if it's a film, you grab someone and you control their reference frame. You carry them along and you can't do that in VR. If you try, you make people puke because they move against their will, that, that, that what they see doesn't match what their brain is tracking, and it's disorienting. And it, it's amazing to me because in this type of storytelling, right now, we're at the same point film was when audiences jumped up and tried to get out of the way of the oncoming train. And that's happening right now, a fundamental reinvention of how humans tell stories. At the heart of this question is the changing nature, not just of narrative, but of the audience itself and how the audience's position or vantage point into a story determines, you know, in a sense, where, where things can go and, and where they are going. The key way to describe the, the essence of that change is really into more and more immersion, putting people as deep inside of a story as they can possibly go. And so you see a medium like virtual reality, you have removed what in film uh, you would call the fourth wall. It's basically the wall that you as the audience are looking into this universe through. You're looking through that window. Well, in virtual reality, the window expands so far that it disappears entirely. And we're used to that progression, right? If you think about uh, normal films becoming 3D films, you know, the progression is deeper inside of that world, or you look at first-person shooters in, in the gaming world. But virtual reality loses that window entirely, and you are fully immersed inside of a new reality. And like you were saying, Mike, what's so fascinating is the way that our biology, that our senses believe it so readily. It's so easy for us to believe the world that we now inhabit, and our bodies embrace it. And as a result, it has this extraordinary impact actually on our neurology as well. And that the experiences you have in virtual reality are a lot less like, you know, a passive engagement with a film or a, a traditional narrative, but it actually is impacting us much more like actual memories. Mm. That's crazy. And it's full of creatively, I don't want to say troubling, but difficult challenges. Because one of, the, one of the big things, if you look at a novel or a film, there's a protagonist who you identify with, and often your brain puts yourself in their shoes, but you're observing them. In a film, you're viewing the protagonist, and there's this pivot point, and it's been a challenge in gaming forever telling stories, because you literally, the, you are the protagonist. You don't observe the protagonist. So many challenges. How do you handle dialogue? It's disorienting, even in a game, when you do a cutscene, if you keep it in first person perspective and you, the protagonist, speak and it's not your voice and you're not saying it, it breaks the immersion. And so then you get to VR, and there's kind of two perspectives I've seen. In VR, you make the viewer an observer, and they can see a protagonist, they can follow a film. Uh, I've seen animations done that way. What's the name of the, the animated feature? The, the boy and the girl go different directions. You can follow oh, them. Duet. Glenn duet. Oh, uh, so good. Google. Yeah. So if they get lost, for example, in that, you can watch either a boy or a girl or go back and forth as they grow. And if you just get totally lost, totally turned around, 
uh, I think a butterfly will come mm-hmm. and guide you back to the scene, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's beautiful and lovely and scored, and so it doesn't really break the immersion. But there's only so many stories you can tell that way. So then the other approach is to make the person themselves look through the eyes of the protagonist. Uh, but at that point, you're either having a level of interaction design that is effectively gaming, or you are risking breaking immersion when people see themselves acting in a way that's non-volitional. And this is, to me, an unsolved problem in the media. And I don't know how we'll solve it. Or how. <laughs> Eventually, of course, you get graphics good enough, you get AI sophisticated enough, and you can accommodate whatever the observer may do. But at this point, you're, you're not crafting a story as much as creating a functioning virtual world. Well, it's exciting to let our geniuses loose on this, our creative storytelling geniuses, because it there will be creative ways of going about this. I mean, look at Sleep No More in New York sure. is a thing where you walk around and try to gather this story that there's no central stage. There's no, like, you're just walking around seeing these characters and kind of putting it together. And I think it's pretty brilliant how they put it together. So who knows what people are going to do with this? But I think it's amazing. I mean, some of the people we've met that are doing it, it's the guy that we met that's doing it. Gabo. And Gabo yeah, is doing, Gabo Aurora. Putting together, like, these experiences where you're immersed into a Syrian refugee camp and you're there. And he's, he brought it to the United Nations, correct? And he, like these people at the United Nations have to be immersed. They put this on and they're immersed in this refugee camp. And how are you not going to let that affect your policies? You yeah, know, like, well, let's exactly talk about refugee right. camps. Okay, well, let's just be there for a second. That's what's amazing about as technology develops and lets us tell our stories more and more effectively. Um, it really can change the world. I mean, the, there's a reason that the most oppressive regimes on earth, there's always censorship, there's always don't let in the outside stories. We need to censor these movies. We need to censor the internet. We need to like keep these stories that like what would happen if in North Korea, if they all could just watch a couple of really well done stories that kind of saw things from a different perspective. Like if, if I mean, it, you want to talk about a forced one story environment. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the most troubling form of storytelling to me is indoctrination. Mm-hmm. Because it still works. It totally works. Have you ever watched any North Korean media? Yes. And I don't mean like like the news propaganda pieces. I mean like a concert or a spectacle of some kind. Yeah. I mean the production. Yeah, it's crazy. Country is putting into this. It's telling their own story though. Telling I know, that one story. But they're telling story. that story. I don't know. They're telling it well. Yeah. I could imagine, you know, I watched some of this film and I was like, well, of, co- of course the country looks glorious if you look on television and see that. Yeah, the people are made to believe that their world, the bubble that they're in, is actual utopia and that they are safe and living in peace because their leader, who they're supposed to view as God, is protecting them from the outside world. Yeah. So everyone else is the enemy. Which is surprisingly it, familiar. Just, yeah, I was just kidding. Wow. Yeah. And yep, yep. And every and to imagine ISIS. yes, imagine every day everything around you is telling you that same narrative that we are safe, stay with me, stay under this umbrella. Like everyone else is going to kill you and they're out to get you. Beware of, beware of stories <laughs> that are too afraid of other stories. There's a virtual reality experience um, 
that takes you inside of a factory farm to watch an animal get slaughtered. There is a question today in a panel uh, by someone who works for a nonprofit that's focused on uh, ending human trafficking, that's trying to recreate a scene uh, of an abduction from multiple points of view. And the question he asked was, how much is too much? Yeah, Yeah, there's no ethical code yet. And and there isn't. There's no rating system for these games. There's, there, you know, the the, the neuroscience. You, you can be these. a victim in a rape, like in virtuality. So that I mean, their point was to build empathy over victim. I want to be. I want to articulate this because for people who haven't tried VR, this is so weird and academic. Mm-hmm. Oculus, which is one of the leading developers of virtuality headsets and systems and software has told developers they won't allow into their store experiences that use anything that's a startle, like a cheap jump out at you, because it's too overpowering in VR. Because it might actually kill some people. Like people or like people like <laughs> heart, heart lose bladder control or right. I mean it's and I'm talking about just ha right in your face. When I and it's accidental, but I, I guess I didn't follow when I first turned on Google Cardboard the app they have kind of an intro video and i was looking the wrong way when a scene came up so i looked back there was a baboon like right here and it wasn't even moving and i have <laughs> terrible reflexes and i don't startle it really scared me mm-hmm. what hands turn white like adrenaline overdrive just because a baboon was too close to my face mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when we talk about mm-hmm. these kind of experiences, mm-hmm. getting raped, well, human trafficking, which can t- but can tell important stories. Yeah. But oh, it's so difficult to understand what are the unforeseen consequences of telling these yeah. stories in this way. Well, I told you guys I had that nightmare. I watched I, you know, spent that afternoon watching VR about um, there were images of war photography and what I thought was 5 minutes inside the VR experience it was actually 20 minutes and so then the following night I had a terrible nightmare and it was just like chaos and terrorists and explosions and not realizing that those images for 20 minutes had imprinted in my mind and caused that trauma so that I'm having nightmares and who knows that you know that was just photographs to experience some Oh, man. That's weird that our technology is getting to a place already and will get to a place where it's like the immersion, it, it could actually cause like PTSD. Yeah, exactly. Or like you have to, like, oh, you're too immersed in the story now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's a very the, real there's topic a There's a prototype uh, where you can put on headsets and then your action field, where you can move your hands and have them tracked is in kind of a, a box in front of you. And there's an array of ultrasound emitters in this box. And so if you reach out and there's a curtain, these ultrasonic projectors can give a tactile sensation of cloth against your hand, even though nothing is there. Now, obviously you, if, if you did a door, you could push right through the door and it would break immersion. But this is the kind of movement in haptic and taptic and all these technologies. Uh, we had a, an experience here where you flew, I think as a dragonfly, you had a backpack on, and you felt the of the wings flapping on your back as you flew over from a dragonfly's perspective, the floor of a forest. The brain's not ready. It's just not ready. You know what's scary? What's scary about this to me is that it's individual, 
and the power of the technology and where to immerse yourself in, if you can live in an entirely different reality and it's only based on your own private space, it's going to turn into what the internet is, largely porn, you know, just experiencing things for your own pleasure or whatever. That's a and li- there is totally VR porn already. If it becomes a way of actually disconnecting from the reality of others and the real stories of others and, and just entering into this reality that is an escaped reality. I mean, there are plenty of like sci-fi books about this sort of thing and everything already, but it's like, what are we going to do with this technology? And there's something interesting about the communal aspect of storytelling that's beautiful about a you know, movie theater or a, and even when you go back, going back to faith, like the Bible was always until the last couple centuries, primarily an oral discipline. It was a declaring and telling stories to a group of people in a community. People didn't own Bibles. They didn't know how to read. It wasn't a text that people would come and like take to their personal homes primarily. That was a, that's a relatively recent development within Christianity. And actually I've heard of some theologians lately that would, that would <laughs> encourage like, because of what we've done with the Bible in modern society would say, we probably, if we could get Bibles out of the hands of, I think it might be uh, what's the cussing old guy that you're afraid of? Stanley Harawas. Harawas. It, it may have been him. I don't want to misquote him. We should take this Stanley Harawas, if you ever listen to the podcast, I'm afraid to read your work. And because of that, we'll probably never invite you on the show, even though we think you're great. Oh. No, we got it. I would love to have Harawas on here. It would be awesome. Um, but I think it was him. I don't want to misquote him. So somebody like, I, th- I don't know who's like Harawas, but would say like, <laughs> would be best if we could get Bibles out of the hands of Christians. And make it again a proclaimed story within community. So how community relates to story versus just me and my Bible or me and my VR headset. Yes. And years ago, one of the first attempts at a metaverse, a a virtual world that was interactive was a, a platform called Second Life. And at first I had a Second Life account and it was amazing. It turned into strip clubs and porno everywhere. But at first, it was primarily a creative tool. I met a lot of people. Friendships I still have on Second Life. And Wait, you still do you still play Second Life? No, uh, these oh. are people I know beyond Second Life. Okay. But I, you know, if, if I'm in the city they live in and we go have a drink or whatever. But I met one person in Second Life and we climbed a mountain together. And when we got to the top, he told me something. We, I've been talking to him for months. He told me something he never told me before. And uh, he was quadriplegic. And he felt like he climbed a mountain that day. And no one judged him on his disability in Second Life because he looked and walked and flew just like everybody else. I had another friend who was severely autistic but could handle interacting with people in Second Life. And I even stumbled upon once, and this was long before my deconstruction or the liturgists, a small church where people, uh, many of them gay, couldn't find local communities, gathered together in Second Life to have a virtual Eucharist. And I was Baptist at the time, so that was nutty. And they found a community. And so I imagine, although I didn't want to leave Mars yesterday, I sure would like to gather in a giant cathedral with every listener of this show at the same time 
and get to know them virtual face to virtual face. Mm-hmm. Liturgist Church. In right, VR, where? I Cyberspace. I go to Liturgist Church. <laughs> but uh, it I would be better. It would Church. be it's better a... for all of our listeners to have people in their community who would accept them just as they are and love them. But when that doesn't happen, those are the times I think that individualistic experience can transcend into a communal one. Hmm. Beautiful. Because we, we will always feel the desire to connect. That's part of us. The, real, the thing where, where you're right and what I get is if the other inhabitants of this space are virtual as well and subservient yeah. to the... Des- so what's good about community is there's people that just won't adhere to your will. But if, if, if you create a virtual world in which everyone, in which you're basically God, that might be entertaining for a couple hours. But if you did that too much, that really would be psychologically warping. You might actually engineer yourself into a sociopath. Hmm. So that's what I mean, yes, and. Uh, this can go both ways, and this probably will go yeah. both of those ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the things you were talking about in, in terms of increasing isolation, you know, that's certainly possible. Inevitably will happen for certain people. But there's this moment that I'll never forget as long as I live. I was honored to to be a guest at the UN this year during one of the summits. And right outside of the doors of the UN was this giant room set up uh, that was featuring all kinds of new storytelling technologies. There were several different virtual reality experiences set up there and covering a, a wide variety of issues. And this young man had made an experience called machine to be another. And there was no line for it. And so I walked up and, and asked if I could you know, go in and participate and have this experience. And I was ushered right in. It was basically like a little photo booth. So you go inside the booth and you look into the mirror and you put on headsets, you know, you put on your, your, your virtual reality goggles and your headphones and across from you, uh, when, when the experience comes on, you basically are looking in the mirror and, and the reflection that's coming back to you is of another human being who is on the other side of this mirror. It was a middle-aged African-American woman, and the entire point of this experience was basically to inhabit her thoughts as she's sitting there looking into the mirror, quietly reflecting. And they had these little uh, sensors you could put in your hand, and basically, as you you were instructed to kind of slowly lift your hand and, and examine your hand, and what was so interesting about the way that this experience was set up uh, using the mirror is that the there was an actual woman on the other side of the screen in real time and she was mirroring my actions so when i slowly moved my hand up to my face she was doing the same thing on the other side so as i'm looking down at my hands in virtual reality i'm seeing her body i, I have in a sense Looking across the room, I'm seeing in virtual reality the human form of myself. And when I look down at my body, I'm seeing her. And so as I'm slowly uh, 
you know, making movements. I can even touch my own face. And you're sitting uh, in this moment you can't really get out of. You're, you're, you're forced into another perspective. But there's this moment right at the end where after having a very emotional uh, time, you know, inhabiting her thoughts, that you stand up. And the mirror basically, you know, falls. And so as you've kind of been looking down at your hands as an African-American woman and seeing your face as an African-American woman in the mirror, the mirror drops and you see your physical form on the other side. And you walk over and you embrace yourself, but you're inhabiting her body. So your body as an African-American woman embraces you know, the virtual self, but it's actually her. And so you, there's this, I, I, and I can't even put into words how powerful this experience was, but like you all of a sudden physically realize that the body you are hugging and seeing as your body in virtual reality is her body. And I just wept. Like I wept, I lost it. And I took the headset off and she looked at me and she started to cry and she was like, this is exactly what this is about. I'm so excited for our kids. Can you imagine in your formative years experiencing that sort of like seeing through other eyes starting there? If go back to education, if education can start using technology and story like this to actually help our kids see through different eyes. Even when you're learning about history and like learning about the civil rights movement, learning about any of these things and feeling it, not just as numbers in a book. I hope that people, that we use this to step into the eyes of somebody else and the stories of somebody else and what that can do for us um, as human beings. That's profound. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. I think sometimes, you know, maybe that's the way to give some sort of value determination to whether something is good as a story in these you know, new technologies, because coming back to your, your point, sometimes they can pull you into isolation and it can be this world where you're kind of directing the universe and, and controlling it and becoming a megalomaniac by, you know, the types of narratives you're inside of. But on the other side, there's this, other kind of experience that pulls you into togetherness having experienced that that changed something about my heart and and the way that i see the world and i can't deny that and i can't unsee it and i wouldn't want to you know thanks to all those who were so kind as to take the time to talk to us at the festival i'd like to especially thank the Windrider Institute and John Pretty and Craig Detweiler and everybody for the award and having us out there. What a pleasure it was. Uh, thanks to Tyler Chester for a couple of the tracks on this podcast. Thanks to Greg Nordine for some of the editing help. Um, we look forward to seeing you guys on the road here soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>